Hello, citizens of the Republic of Bunga. It's Alpha Bunga Bunga. The date is Thursday, the 12th of November, though you, dear patron, are probably hearing this a little bit later on. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. Hello. Hey. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. How's it going? Good uh, afternoon. It's afternoon here for me, but um, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because we're here to talk about why culture blows, why culture totally sucks and is a waste of time. (laughs) I think this is at least what I've been briefed on. This is what George has told me this episode is about. Um, but I'll hand over to him to explain a little bit more. Yeah, when I when I hear the word culture, I reach for my Graham Coxon <laughs> CDs. Um, uh, I said that's a, that's that's, a that's good kind of obscure, George. That's kind of obscure. It's very obscure. Um, and no, so we're taste, talking more importantly. <laughs> See, we've already started talking about culture. Um, <laughs> always talking about it um no so yeah so today we're we're i guess talking about who works in in the culture industries who consumes culture what are the benefits of culture um and we have uh, we're joined by one of the authors of a recent book culture is bad for you so not exactly um uh hedging their bets on that um yeah to discuss all of these things so yeah looking forward to to, to talking with mark about this I mean, it's a spicier, it's a spicier title. And then when you get into it, you're like, ah, okay, this is about what it seems like to be about inequality in cultural production and cultural consumption, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I'm kind of interested to, to hear about that. I mean, I guess more specifically about the UK context, but I'm sure a lot of this stuff will have wider resonance. Were, were you just thinking it was going to be like a 200 page list of here's all the bad culture <laughs> things <laughs> things that suck yeah last season of game of thrones yeah all reality that's, tv well that's a low-hanging fruit cetera, yeah um and then it goes up to, to to higher more less easily accessible fruit um which is the tastier fruit i'm told anyway let's start uh babbling let's call mark up you get to see behind the curtain here mark this is i really feel like i'm learning a lot here it's like um, uh, Greg Wallace uh, when he goes into the factory to see how uh, weed bits are made. But this is not. The thing is, like, to my shame, I do enjoy those. <laughs> I mean, actually, no, this is gold. Like, because you're, you're about to ask me what culture do I, like, am I willing to defend? And yeah. I feel like Greg Wallace is pretty much plumbing the depths. Yeah. That's and Plum is also relevant because he used to be a greengrocer. So it's all... <laughs> A neat circle um this oh, is like yeah like plums like the fruit yeah you see i, ca- I can't believe and you're we're wasting back to fruit, and we're back to fruit. The show <laughs> um, no, the other thing is presumably um i don't know if you're doing or have already done and in like the bit of the intro that i'm not in mm. yes. we have we, we talked about how much we're looking forward to, to talking about the book and, and calling you up um so and there was a yeah, thing and, about and here fruit. he is now and there was a thing about <laughs> oh. fruit so if you can drop in as many fruit references as possible as you go along, yeah that'll be fine that'd be great thank you i'm 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 really not doing all of the things that i should be doing how would you like to be introduced this is the you know the really embarrassing bit where yeah i mean just like a sociologist we could just read from the back of the book but how would you like to be introduced oh god well um Yeah, say something like uh, Mark is a is an academic at the University of Sheffield who's interested in inequalities in culture. Cool. 
Uh, and possibly, right I mean, possibly say, is the author of Culture is Bad for You with Orion Brooke and Dave O'Brien. Would you be willing to talk shit about your co-authors? <laughs> I mean, I can probably gently take the piss out of them as the conversation continues. <laughs> okay, wonderful. So one thing in case you might, just in case you didn't already know, Orion is pronounced Orion rather than Orion, which is a mistake that other people have made. Yeah. Okay, author with... Sorry, just to, to check, how's... Um, Orion Is that belt. Darve or is that Dave? Darve. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... it's I, I mispronounce everybody's name, so it's Orion. It's Orion. Orion. Orion's belt. You know, like Orion's belt? <laughs> yeah. <Cool> constellation. <laughs> Orion. Orion. It's not hard, Jorian. Jorian. Like the fruit. <laughs> Yes, thank you. <laughs> We're very happy to be joined this evening um, by Mark. Mark Taylor uh, is an academic at the University of Sheffield who's interested in inequalities and culture and the author with Dave O'Brien and Orion Brooke of Culture is Bad for You. Uh, so, Mark, how's it, how's it going? Yeah, really good. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Um, so, just to kick things off, um, before we get into some of the... The, the heavier discussion around uh, um, cultural production, who consumes culture, what the benefits of culture are, just to get the ball rolling. What is the quote unquote worst or uh, lowest culture thing that you would defend just to give, I guess, listeners some some background, some idea of uh, what they're dealing with in this in this episode? I'm not sure it's going to be that instructive in terms of what they're dealing with around the book, but I will defend the oeuvre of Greg Wallace. I will defend Greg Wallace going around a factory and looking surprised at the fact that factories make a lot of food. I will defend him hectoring rich people that don't know how to cook and instead buying a lot of takeaways and are surprised to learn that they accumulate a lot of salt in the process. I don't enjoy the process at all, and but somehow I feel myself drawn to his egg-like head relentlessly. So just for because most of our listeners are probably not uh, as familiar as uh, they perhaps should be with um, some of the programs that he's he's been in. Um, is is there an international equivalent or a, um, some context to put uh, Greg into? I'd welcome input from the hosts. Uh, my immediate response is to say that Greg Wallace is truly individual, and there's no obvious corresponding figure it's not an ideal point of reference but maybe Guy Fieri as you know somebody who's so enthusiastic yeah. about his own bad food but and but also who is, who is the so British. Greg Wallace Alex I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure there is one I'm, yeah I, I can't think of like and also I, I haven't watched really like Brazilian MasterChef and that so um but I but I think that the thing with Greg Wallace is that he's very British so I think if you were trying to transpose Guy Fieri, uh, it wouldn't just be a matter of taking like the flame uh, decalled car and clothes off and thinking, well, that and, you know, getting rid of the bleached hair and thinking, well, that's just Greg the British Wallace version naked. of it. Well, you, no, we're talking about Guy Fieri naked, first of all. And secondly, that is not a British 
uh, Guy Fieri. Just taking his clothes off will not make him British. Um, so it's something more specific. There's something very, very British about Guy Fieri. If you, if you watch, maybe for, for non-British listeners, if you've ever seen like a bit of EastEnders, I don't know why you would, and I'm not sure why that would be helpful. But if you take one of the two bold brothers from that thing uh, and like, but make him a cooking guy, then you kind of at least have an image of Greg Wallace. Um, I mean, the important thing to say about Greg Wallace is he's not a cooking guy. He's an eating guy. Like he's not a particularly <laughs> proficient chef, but people bring him food and they care about what he thinks for reasons that are still not clear. That is actually that you know, like that is actually a very fine cultural point. And the consumer so, producer distinction, I think, is something that we'll uh, yeah, plumb into, exactly. you know, a little bit. Further. But I, I yeah. think, but shouldn't we actually all say what the worst or lowest culture thing we would defend would be? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're, we're all eating guys. I'm assuming we we all eat <laughs> at some point. Um, but yeah, let's let, let's go around. I mean, this is this is cultural criticism at, at its at its finest. Phil, what Alex, would, what are the what are the worst or lowest culture thing that you would? I was going to say you should defend? go first, George, as the host. Well, there's. I'm just thinking of something which I've had recent disagreements with uh, people, possibly in the podcast about. Uh, I think Line of Duty is good. It is not bad. Um, it is exciting. It is the BBC trying to do a an American uh, TV show, and its detractors, its haters, don't really don't really understand what drama is. They don't really understand what tension is or what character development. And okay, you weren't you um, weren't asked, you weren't asked to talk about like what the critics might say in response. You were just asked to say what the worst or lowest culture thing you would defend would be. I mean, George, are you saying that Line of Duty is as low as you're willing to go? Because this feels a lot like, <laughs> again, to come back to the food theme, where they ask chefs about dirty food that they enjoy, and somebody describes making a cheese toasty that takes 45 minutes, while somebody else <laughs> in the piece talks about how much they love a kebab. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that is probably a fair criticism. I was cheese trying to think through, what's, what's the worst post-rock band that I, that I like to listen to? But that's, that doesn't really fit the bill, does it? Phil, what about you? What about you? Yeah, this is tricky. Uh, I think probably Family Guy. Is this all of Family Guy? Yeah, to the bitter end. I think it's so relentlessly like obscene and um, cruel and crude and unremittingly like uh, unremittingly unfunny as well. I think like that's going to be a part of. Like, <laughs> I'm glad you went be there because I. It, it would have been a bit cringe if you had insisted that it was still very funny. Um, so I'm glad uh, we don't have to. Kind of it breaks through the, be- you know, it kind of it bottoms out until it becomes funny again. Um, it's mm. not as clever or as uh, you know, it's not as clever or as incisive as, sa- as satire as South Park is now. Um, and but I still I think I defend it because it, I think it's uh, there's something about it that still rings true. So, Phil, if we're thinking about a complete absence of Messiah, would you be willing to defend the new season of Spitting Image? So I haven't actually seen anything, you know, kind of, I've not seen a full episode. I've only been seeing clips that have been shared by other people um, and mixed. So mixed so far. I don't know if I would defend it all the way. The old ones, gonna, though, were pretty good. It's going to be very hit and miss, isn't it? Um, but, the old but, one was very hit and miss. And also, I only realize this retrospectively. The reason the old one is so good, in fact, is only because it's kind of um, you feel like, you know, you feel like you uh, 
it's nostalgic. It brings back a certain kind of time and place. Um, that's why it's experienced as good. Because at the time, I don't think it was probably that good. No, there was, there's a reason why it um, it got cancelled. But Alex, to to, to um, you're probably going to talk about some um, Brazilian cultural product that I'm, I'm, both simultaneously well, indicates no, I, I, your low cultural um, uh, credentials and also your cosmopolitanism. Yeah, well, and your I mean, high cultural would, credentials to that, everyone else. That just shows that just shows that. Uh, you know, kind of the the he- cultural hegemony of of core countries, especially Anglo American ones, uh, disrespecting the cultural production of the periphery in different different See? perspectives. See, you're, you're proving uh, right. you're doing, well, What yeah, I was gonna say, what, right I was, now. what I was gonna say is that uh, as an as as an eating guy, but also as a food making guy, um, some people call that cooking. Some people even call it cuisine. Uh, I would defend all the uh, highest pretension of cooking as art uh, i buy into that shit um alternatively maybe that that's too too pretentious uh, i would defend the music of typo negative uh, which i recently had occasion to listen to in great depth uh, as i was driving up a misty tropical mountain uh, on halloween night uh, no joke true story and it was great it was it was a real experience so yeah typo negative uh, check it out <laughs> We're giving listeners recommendations as well for things to watch and uh, listen to. But I feel like it's my responsibility. In fact, it definitely is as the host or the producer of this episode to pull things back on on track. Um, So, yeah, Mark, so the book Culture is is Bad for You um, is the title. Um, Why did you why did you want to write this book? I've been interested in inequalities in culture for a little while. And a lot of the work around inequalities in culture has been maybe like a little bit gentle and has tried to come up with ways in which culture can be salvaged, come up with ways in which we can largely defend the endeavour and the exercise, just sort of tinkering at the edges saying, well, maybe if we solve this little problem that we've been able to diagnose, maybe everything will be okay. As I've been thinking about this stuff for a little while now, it becomes clear that none of this can be resolved with little marginal tweaks. The entire endeavour, it sort of rots from the head, effectively. And so what we've tried to do in assembling the book is to put together a slightly more expansive bit of work that doesn't just point at one or other of some of the issues with inequalities in and around culture, but also make a stronger case that this persists in a number of different ways that are endemic to the sector. They're not just coincidences or accidents and try to put things more strongly, not saying culture is great and every, and there's just a couple of problems that we need to solve, but to explicitly say, and that's the name of the book, culture is bad for you. Mm. No, I, I think um, we could probably talk for quite a while about what culture means. As Raymond Williams says, it's one of the, the two most complex words in the English language. Um, the, the, the most complex in his opinion being, being nature. Um, but I think we can kind of probably get into some of those distinctions about you know what, what is culture in in a bit um because I, I guess i wanted to ask you what in researching it and actually kind of writing it what did you do because there's a list at the back of the book um of who you spoke to and you spoke to these 237 cultural workers in total but could you talk us through a little bit around the research like who did you talk to um you know what was what was their background and, and why did you you know want to speak to them um specifically so there were sort of three main things that we did The first thing that we did, and this cuts through quite a lot of the start of the book, but also we revisited it a bit later, is use sources of data that were already out there on cultural workers. And some of that data isn't specifically about cultural workers 
workers. But if you're using something like the Labour Force Survey in the UK that has 200,000 people every quarter, there's going to be a bunch of cultural workers in there. So the first thing that we did was we looked at existing sources of data to try to understand some of these dynamics. And so when you see quotes about, for example, some risibly small number of people working in creative jobs from working class backgrounds, that's where that information has come from. The second thing that we did was we ran our own survey, um, which was hosted on, of all places, theguardian.com, where we had about two and a half thousand people who responded to that. And in that, it was pitched roughly to the effect of, do you work in cultural and creative industries? Uh, Fill in this survey about your experiences of the sector. And then the last thing that we did, as you say, is we interviewed 237 of them. And those were of the two and a half thousand-ish people that uh, did the survey online. And so we have, yeah, about 10% of them we interviewed for about an hour each. And so the reason why we talked to them, the thing that was instructive about the way that we got hold of them was instead of sort of targeting and we'll probably talk about this in a minute but the way that uh, the government formally classifies what you might call cultural and creative industries is quite weird instead of saying well you know we should be expecting roughly x percent of musicians y percent of actors z percent of people working in software development we wanted people who thought of themselves as cultural workers. And so that meant that we got people, we, you know, we got a lot of the people who you might expect, you know, we interviewed musicians and actors and visual artists and people working in museums and galleries and so on. We also caught quite a lot of people who worked in what you might refer to as portfolio careers, doing quite a lot of different things, partly in what you might refer to as the cultural sector and uh, some not. In, in execution, and this won't come as a great surprise, the if you believe the government by far the biggest part of the of the creative industries is it and software mm. we didn't get many of them uh, mm. because i think you know if you were to say to people who build back end content for siemens which is where a lot of the sector is if you ask them if they worked in the creative industries they would probably say no yeah and so that's who we spoke to and throughout the book uh, we've sort of tried to integrate some of the survey responses, telling you, telling the reader about the sort of broad patterns across the sector, but also from having spoken to 237 people, quite a bit more about their specific experiences and their attitudes. Yeah, no, I think it, I mean, having looked through the the list at the back of the, the book, it does seem like a, a really wide range. But I think, I think maybe Alex had a, a question about... Um, a group of important cultural workers who might potentially have been overlooked. So, so George is trying this, to, in this um, study. you know, you, you do this to me and then um, I'm going to throw you in it because what George wants me to ask is this question that I'm going to read out in front of my, me is um, why did you not include podcasters in cultural workers, which is a fair point, actually, um, insofar as uh, it's remunerated work and, and, you know, mostly it's not. Um, but but someone has called them apparently the new punk rockers. I don't know why someone would, would say that. Um, that's an absurd pretension uh, for anyone that anyone would might have. Um, but, you know, it might have been tongue in cheek. But in any case, I guess the question is, why, why were podcasters uh, not, not included? So there were two bits of preparation that I did uh, in the run-up for this podcast. The first one was to think about who the new punk rockers are. So I referred to the authoritative academic source, search.twitter.com in which I found that 90 plus percent of references to the new punk rockers were American conservatives. 
But the second thing that I did was I looked back through all of our transcripts for references to podcasters. And when you claim that we didn't interview any podcasters, we actually interviewed five um, out of the 237 people that we spoke to, five of them were podcasters. And the reason why this might not be obvious from reading the book is that, and you'll know this as well as anyone, for none of them was it their only job. You know, these were people who would tell us that they worked in media or they worked in publishing. You know, somebody worked as a journalist and also did a weekly podcast that was published through a magazine or a newspaper or whatever else. And so, as you say, this podcasting actually captures quite a lot of contemporary cultural work really effectively. It is remunerated, but not very well. The remuneration is quite weird in that people are maybe hosting Patreons and as opposed to having a relationship with an employer. And in most cases, it wasn't somebody's only job, uh, wherein, you know, they were able to get an audience for their podcast through their other work. Uh, for example, uh, one of the people that we spoke to, who's both both a podcaster and a stand-up, the stand-up drove traffic to the podcast, but the podcast also drew traffic to the stand-up. Yep. And so in a lot of ways, podcasting really does capture some of the odd and in many ways, contemporary labor relations in creative work. You say there's that no employer. A- you say there's no employer, but I mean, you know, there's a whole number of podcasts who are uh, quite clearly sponsored by a, you know, CIA, Mossad, FSB joint venture, um, <laughs> who they have to answer to. So I mean, th- you know, there are podcasts name, out there like names, that. Names. No, no, no. Not they're us. just most likely most of the podcasts you listen to are that listener. It's just, it's just <laughs> so, a fact. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move things on from actually what was a, was a, was a very good answer and a, 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 a better answer than the question. That, I, that I'd uh, suggested uh, deserve. Um, so yeah, to move on to the to the argument of, of the book a little bit, because um, I essentially deals with relationships between three parts of culture, or this is this is my my reading, and I'll obviously disagree <laughs> if if this isn't correct. Um, but what the benefits of culture are: the first thing, who works in what we would call cultural occupations; second, and thirdly, who consumes culture? Who who is reading books, going to the opera, listening to podcasts, um, as you as you put it, a really central, important part of, of modern culture, I think we'd all agree. Um, so just to take the first of these and start with the benefits of culture, because obviously this pertains to the title of the book as well. Um, so the title takes a pretty strong line. Culture is bad for you. Um, is this, uh, do you actually think this? Um, because surely culture gives us all of these, you know, Ab- abstract and and concrete joys of of life and um a lot of enriching human experiences so culture can't be can't be bad for us can it so the tension is between whether culture is good for us in the raymond williams sense and whether the kind of culture which is being defended by people saying that culture is good for you is good for you that's clumsy but you get the idea and this gulf between different understandings of culture i think is really important so if we think of culture being important because it's a space in which we can hang out with our friends and form meaningful relationships within our communities, and obviously this can take all sorts of different forms, then, you know, that's fantastic. If you look at the most recent Arts Council uh, strategy called Let's Create, and you look at the videos, which are all about people uh, developing things in their local community that are relevant to their heritage and their backgrounds and the people to whom they live closely, you know, great, everybody's on board. And then you sort of take a step and you look at what the Arts Council actually spends its money on. Mm. 
and you find yourself maybe losing confidence in what is being defended. Because as we get from the claim, culture is good for you, and everyone thinks, well, of course, culture is good for you. It's inspirational. And then you see what are the things actually getting where, where is the money going when we make this argument? So uh, in that, in the second chapter, where we talk about this claim that culture is good for you, and the evidence is pretty persuasive in a lot of ways. Um, there's various arguments that I don't want to get hung up on because a lot of them are quite technical. Right. But things like, well, you know, when you look at people participating in choirs and dance programs and uh, music and so on, they seem to have all of these benefits. And that's true. But those benefits are limited to quite a small group of people. Similarly, yeah. you're not really seeing like... As far as I understand it, there hasn't been a randomized control trial wherein people get allocated to this podcast to see how much it improves the quality of their lives. And, you know, this is something that you should really be getting on, given that culture is good for you, as we've come to understand. Why isn't the Department of Health giving you 100 million pounds? So I guess this is this is one of the questions is around potentially the instrumentalization. Like, can you quantify the benefit of listening to Alpha Bunga Bunga to, <laughs> on somebody's life. Can you, but to take it perhaps a more uh, serious example, can you really quantify the, um, the experience of, you know, reading a great novel and reaching across the generations and having that kind of, that that very human um, sense that there is another, another voice out there um, and seeing yourself reflected partly in it and seeing another world in it as well, um, or whatever, you can put that in as highfalutin terms as you might like to. Um, but yeah, I mean, is, is, is there a potential problem that you can measure the things that culture might um, have an instrumental benefit on, mental health, health, well-being, so on and so forth, um, but th- those aren't ever always, those aren't going to be the only benefits that culture gives. I mean, all measurement is bad. If we want to understand whether, okay. uh, you know, persuading people to, for example, attend museums on a given basis, like say, there's there's a lot of discussion about social prescribing at the moment. This idea that if you go to the, your GP and you tell them that you're depressed, then they should say to you, well, you've got to go to this gallery every Saturday. That's reductive, but it's not a million miles away from what's actually being proposed. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds uh, well, patronising. How, how do you mean, Mark? So, I mean... So wh- how do I mean with which part? Well, with the part about what it's not a million miles away. I mean, presumably they can prescribe antidepressants. I mean, okay, outside of the pandemic, you know, kind of accessing services at the moment is difficult, but they prescribe antidepressants or they um, refer you on to um, somebody who can provide psychotherapy um, or counselling of some kind. I mean, so tell us a bit more. So the if you think about what it is like to get prescribed antidepressants, the process, and I'm not a health specialist, I'm particularly not a psychiatric specialist, but if you think about what it is to get prescribed antidepressants, you get sent to a pharmacist with a prescription, and it's a case of take these things, uh, this is what we're going to give you, this is how often you're going to take them, and we're going to catch up in however many months' time to talk about how it's going. If it's a case of you've got to go to a museum, it's much less clear exactly what that entails. Is it you physically show up to any museum, you cross the threshold, turn around and go home? You know, do you need to look at paintings for a given amount of time in order to execute it? Does it matter what the paintings are? I suppose I meant just more, much more basically. I mean, um, 
that people, medical professionals are actually kind of saying, go if somebody, if a if a patient comes to them and says, I'm depressed, I can't, you know, I can't uh, carry on. I'm really miserable. I can't get up in the morning, whatever it is. They say, well, you need to go to a museum. That's basically what's being proposed. And I need to be clear that this isn't, again, this is not really my world, but this isn't really being proposed by, you know, it's not as if the BMA has adopted the policy that the solution to the NHS funding crisis is to tell GPs to send people to museums. This is more something that's coming from bits of the academic literature, such as the literature that we draw on in the second chapter, from particular bits of public health, suggesting basically that GP, you know, I've read reports that claim that GPs aren't sufficiently well trained in the benefits of culture and they should all be sent on a course to understand them better so that when their depressed patients come and see them, they'll uh, duly send them to the National Gallery. Yeah, yeah. It's very, I mean, I have to say it's it's, it's very creepy. Mm. Yeah, it's tricky because, like, I think a lot of people have the same instinctive response that you've had, which is the same one that I have, which is, this is gross, this isn't what museums and galleries should be for, this feels a little bit irresponsible uh, on the part of the medical establishment. But I'm not an expert in medicine. If this genuinely is helping people, then I don't see why we shouldn't do it. It's more that I think there are, as George has alluded to, it feels uncomfortable and it feels inappropriate to say that what culture is for is as an alternative to, or at least as a um, something to augment the failures of the social care system. I think there's, there's, there's definitely that, um, I guess it is instrumentalization. Obviously it doesn't account for some of the, the, for example, the sad music that we might like to listen to uh, Elliot Smith without any, uh, uh, desire to make ourselves um, better, or any, or gain any instrumental benefits, and perhaps even even the opposite. But I'm, I think we can probably come back to some of these these questions about the the benefits of culture, and just to move it on a little bit in terms of who who works in culture or the cultural occupations. Um, what's your what's your approach here? I mean, how did you look to answer this question in the in the, in the British context? So I mentioned a little bit earlier that the way that we formally measure what's called the cultural and creative industries in the UK is quite odd. There is a list of occupations that you can get from DCMS, which is the department that notionally is in charge of the sector. And, you know, I said already that all measurement is bad, but it means that we we have, I think, a set of 10 different broad groups of cultural occupations. And so these are things like advertising and marketing, film, TV, radio and photography, um, museums, galleries and libraries and so on. And so in order to try to understand cultural jobs and to understand creative work, the first thing that we wanted to do was treat these as separate from each other. Because, you know, like if you're concerned about or at least alert to potential inequalities in culture, you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be the same for dancers and programmers. And so the way that we approach it is to look at it in a fairly macro sense, looking at the sort of national official statistics about the kinds of people working in these occupations, because, you know, there's a lot of them. And so, yeah, we think that looking at occupations is a helpful way of understanding it, um, because if you want to understand what the inequalities are in visual arts as a starting point, 
you want to know who the visual artists are. You want to know who the curators are. Yeah. You want to know who's running the galleries. So, so sorry, just to, just to interrupt you a little bit there. <clears throat> In terms of, I guess, the the proportion of the the workforce, what sort of um, what sort of fraction are we looking at here in terms of people who would uh, see themselves or would be classified as working in the cultural occupations? Well, as in how many of of the overall population in work? Yeah, yeah, I guess just just in terms of, you know, is this a, is this a um, I don't want to kind of preempt the question, but this is presumably not um, not three quarters of, of the, you know, the, the, the labour force. It's not three quarters of the labour force, but it's not hardly anyone either. It's not that this is this incredibly marginal pursuits and it's this sort of bourgeois affectation to say, oh, aren't artists interesting? And you see this quite a lot in the response to the pandemic, um, because if you look at how people are discussing the sort of government response to the pandemic, there's a lot of discussion of people working cultural occupations, because on the one hand, a lot of the work has just ground to a halt and the sorts of employment relations that these people have means that in a lot of cases they can't be put on furlough they can't be they're not eligible for small business supports yeah so it's in the sort of depending on how you measure it and i'm sort of keen to avoid the expansive definition where a huge amount of the sector gets swallowed up with people building software backends for siemens but i'm gonna get this wrong but it's sort of in the sort of three to five percent of people work of of people working in the uk yeah so i mean that's that's a fairly significant number it's um, a lot of people and yeah. they tell us all the time not unreasonably that the sector makes quite a lot of money you know it's not just people in their post-rock bands having a nice time and living in destitution telly makes a lot of money um films make a lot of money games yeah. make a lot of money so yeah. So, Mark, I mean, I wonder, I'm going to be really blunt here. Why is inequality bad? I mean, in the sense that, you know, why should we care about inequality in the arts and in culture, actually? Because it's not just the arts, is it? Um, I mean, you know, because maybe because of an abstract sense of justice, you think it's unfair. You think it's not, uh, you know, the meritocracy that it promises itself to be. But why does it actually matter in terms of what is actually produced and and maybe even just in a deeper sense of, of, of culture? I mean... Um, well, I, maybe we'll come back to we'll come back to the, what the deeper sense of culture is. But I mean, uh, you know, why why effectively does it matter that uh, you know that, that there isn't an equal re- representation in the arts? Uh, that you know, the ballerinas are all posh. I mean, does it matter if the if the dancing's good? The dancing's good. Yeah. So this matters. is one of the things that I think we've really struggled with all the way through, and it's an, I think it's an essential question because nobody cares if accountants are all posh if the numbers add up. I mean, they don't, but there's a lot and nobody cares if medics are all posh if they save lives. So it means that we do end up with this sort of challenge when we describe the inequalities in the sector, where we're asking, what's the problem? And largely the way that I I sort of tend to approach it is that the kinds of people, and there's quite a lot of very strong evidence for this, the kinds of people working in culture informs the kind of culture that gets made. And this isn't to claim that, you know, you have to be from a particular kind of background in order to be able to represent it in the work that we produce. It's more that the kinds of people that are producing culture are more likely to draw on these backgrounds. And we can see historically that there's a really strong relationship between the kinds of culture, the kinds of people making culture, the kinds of culture that they make and the kinds of audiences that then emerge for that culture. And if the kinds of people making the culture are relatively narrow, 
that means that the products are, and that means that mm. the audiences are. And if we think that the point of culture is to represent the nation, which a lot of people would argue that it is, then if only a narrow fraction of the nation is being represented, then that's a problem. Well, it I mean, it's a problem. <laughs> So, but well, that's actually a good a good case because Limmy, uh, you know, is a comedian who's making just silly videos on the internet, and, and I think maybe that points to the problem that you know, even if you representing the nation as it is, you know, as a kind of fixed entity, is maybe a problematic way to look at it, especially because that representation happens through the institutions, through the cultural organs that already exist, and maybe those are the problem rather than uh, the the exact Say way it, that Alex. they well the, the, say it. What? Then the, the, who it. they hire? Say what? No. You don't know what I'm going to say it. Say what? Say it the way you're meant to say it. It's problematic. No, it's, I'm not <laughs> going to do it. I'm not going <laughs> to. Say it. Problem. <laughs> there you go. Um, but anyway, the, uh, what I mean is maybe the culture industry is the problem rather than uh, the fact that it's not fully meritocratic and that what it produ- and then of course I agree with you that the consequences would be would be bad. You know, the consequences of having uh, just a bunch of posh people making culture uh, gives you a distorted kind of cultural output and and uh, doesn't really represent the nation. Um, doesn't perform the role that culture should perform. But maybe. Yeah, maybe I guess the way of framing it suggests that, you know, just having a, a kind of more, I don't know, having having a more equal intake in terms of who culture hires uh, would not really resolve the problem. Oh, no, I absolutely agree. Like, if you imagine, imagine in next year's BBC intake, you know, taking the BBC as an example of a big recruiter that people love to shit on. If you imagine next year that their intake was completely representative in all the hypothetical ways that we might want to aim for of the general population, do we think that the sort of work that the BBC is going to be producing is going to be radically different? And like, not really, you know, maybe there'll be a couple of episodes of Doctors that have a slightly different tone. Maybe there'll be a little bit more interesting stuff going on on Radio 2 or something else, but it's not going to be a radical transformation. This is something that we see quite strongly, where some of the cultural workers that we interviewed who are from, for example, historically marginalised backgrounds, people who don't look and sound like the people at the top, who do get hired, because, you know, just because of the cultural sector is uh, unequal and imbalanced, it doesn't mean that everyone is exactly the same. The people in these sorts of roles tended to find it quite frustrating because they didn't have the sort of autonomy that they might have liked. You know, the structures of the industry, as you describe, limited their ability to do what they wanted to do. Mm. No, I mean, sorry, go go ahead, Phil, actually, because I'm sure your question will kind of take off from from where I was leading. Well, it was just to, so, I mean, if you could give us Tell us a bit, I suppose, if you could flesh out, make it concrete, what is a a kind of exemplar or illustrative example of someone who works in UK culture industries today? What do they look like? Um, What's the demographic? Where do they live? Uh, You know, what might they do in terms of culture? Um, Tell us if you could tell us a bit about what this kind of uh, composite kind of uh, figure looks like. I'll tell you about two people. So the first one is the composite figure that you describe. And the easiest question to answer based um, based on that list that you provided is they live in London. They almost right. overwhelmingly live in London and, you know, correspondingly spend a grotesque amount of money on live on uh, on rent or live with their parents. Yeah. You know, the composite figure, um, if they're 
reasonably established in their career you know let's say they're in their 30s or uh, or they're older they've had a bit of experience they've been promoted a couple of times they're probably a man they're probably straight uh, which has come as a surprise to a lot of people they're probably white and they probably came from a middle-class background and when you ask them what kind of background they came from they would describe it as very ordinary so and george would, george basically you know so like for example you might find that somebody has grown up in uh berkshire and you know they 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 weren't privately educated but they went to a very selective school yeah. and then you know they went to an elite institution yeah. uh you know they for example had a bunch of higher education and now they are you know they're doing a bunch of different roles it's not yeah. as if they've sort of landed on a crash mat they've gone into a position paying them 80k they might do a bit of podcasting in addition yeah. to their day job yeah this and this this, this is a horrible they'll this talk is a horrible about picture. their working these, class background all the time about these people this these people sound completely intolerable and i mean um, it's interesting because you know they might have a family connection to Mansfield. Huh? They might, they might, or might not. <laughs> I mean, but this is—you're uh, the expert on this. I mean, we'll have to defer to your to your judgment here. <laughs> yeah. But there's but there's a second person I want to tell you about. Um, so that's the sort of generic composite, yeah. and it's a very easy figure to hate. To say, you know, like this yeah. is all monsters. Yeah, sure. They're all clueless. Sure. Yeah. Uh, they have no idea about the real world uh, beyond yeah. their own four walls. Absolutely. Maybe a more illustrative example, you know, and you know, like the number of people where all of those things apply to them is quite limited. Maybe a more illustrative example is Isabel, who's one of the people that we interviewed. And Isabel, uh, that's not a real name, works in publishing. She's got a day job. Uh, it doesn't pay brilliantly well, but it's all right. You know, like it, the work is quite satisfying and she loves it. She yeah. feels like she's doing something morally good and worthwhile in the world. And, you know, like it's, and I don't disagree with that. Um, and Isabel is uh, is black, she's black British. She grew up in London. And so, you know, instantly I've told you two things that uh, diverge from the Berkshire, sorry, the, yeah, the Berkshire hate figure yeah. that I presented earlier. Nothing wrong with Berkshire, but 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 to, to continue your, your, your portrait. Yeah, and, and so she's interesting for a number of reasons. Um, because so when she was talking to us, she told us a little bit about her background. And as I said before, you know, there's this idea of telling a modest story. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that she referred to, for example, was that her dad's parents were teachers and so they were lower middle class. And, and when she was describing how she got into working in culture, into her current role, but also more generally, she talked about how she had, um, you know, her parents, oh, you know, like it wasn't that much, but, you know, you'd go to like art classes every Saturday morning. She'd be taken to museums as if it was the most, most normal thing in the world and everyone yeah. did it. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, she was going to drama classes and she quite liked it. Um, oh, but then it turned out that her dad's mate uh, was an agent and she ended up getting cast in something where <laughs> she when she was 13, she got cast in a kid's show. Uh, and so she was the lead in that for a couple of years. And then, you know, she went to uni and she kept getting sort of bits of TV work. And now she's in this theatre company. She got selected for this theatre company. And, you know, they do a day a week and they're not paid for their work. But, you know, they have a bunch of perks accompanying it. You know, they get various different free tickets and so on. And I think it's a really illustrative case for a number of reasons. Firstly, talking about what she's doing now, you know, she's balancing her day job with which she does love 
uh, in publishing with acting that she's doing um, on the side. And the acting that she's doing, she's not being paid for, but it's not the kind of exploitation that we saw with some of our other participants, you know, who'd worked in a museum for nothing for a year while everyone else was being paid. None of them are being paid. Um, they're like money is changing hands at some stage, you know, when they're putting on a production at a theater, money is changing hands, but none of it is going to them. But she has the kind of background that makes a lot of these things relatively seamless. Uh, you know, she was going to these classes as a child and then her dad's mate was an agent and then that agent knew somebody else, which meant mm -hmm. that after she'd done the first show, she was able to get put forward for something else. And it's this modest story of all of this stuff being the most normal thing in the world that you could understand that if you weren't from the kind of background where, you know, your dad's mate was an agent, as with a lot of the other people um, that we spoke to. Yeah. It's just another world and you couldn't imagine how this would be penetrable. And so, you know, we had a lot of people who, and, you know, with that story, you know, like a lot of it, she's not being paid for. It's not necessarily satisfying, but none of it is wasted time. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the other people that we spoke to, you know, they'd be working for free. They'd be doing these unpaid internships. They'd be putting on these productions where somebody else was getting paid and they knew the work was bad. And it was a waste of time. It wasn't it wasn't taking them anywhere, but they sort of had to keep themselves warm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that does, to be fair, I mean, that does sound a bit like George again, even if it is the second character. But anyway, um, one of the things I wanted to dig into a bit was the political attitudes of UK cultural producers. Yeah. And basically um, you find, I mean, to my great surprise, that they tend to be uh, a bit on the left. And even more interestingly and surprisingly, they tend to support the European Union. They tend to have oh, voted look, Remain. Oh, look, Phil's talking about Brexit. That's interesting. How did we end up there? <laughs> hey, what? don't interrupt. Don't interrupt. And more strongly, even strikingly, they're more strongly pro-Remain and perhaps even less happy to be leaving the European Union than uh, potential other groups in the population. At the same time as being more uh, politically engaged, um, so I was wondering if you could talk us through the political attitudes of this um, of this social group. Yeah, a bit and more. sorry, just just to jump in here before, before you answer, Mark. I, I guess that there is there is something here about <clears throat> obviously this this group of people that we're talking about um, in general having probably an outsized influence on politics across across a number of different national contexts. Um, so yeah, I guess obviously the UK uh, example has has some specific. Um, aspects to it but i think there's probably a more general point here about the you know what is what are the political attitudes of cultural producers and and are they politically important so again we sort of run into this problem of like what is the problem here like why is it an issue if uh, people working in the cultural sector have political attitudes that aren't exactly the same as the general population. You know, nobody is particularly worried that bankers are right-wing, for example. And, you know, so we end up with this challenge where, and I should be clear, it's not like a monoculture. It's not as if every single person uh, who's in these data sets, every single person that we spoke to is sort of like full FBPE dad, like consistently voting Lib Dem as hard as they can. It is a mix, but compared with the general population, they are noticeably more left-wing and they're particularly, they're more liberal. 
uh, in terms of, you know, some of the ways that you might measure liberal attitudes. And so partly it's what you describe, that the representation crisis, which I described earlier, saying, you know, if these people are drawn from a relatively narrow part of the population, um, can they really represent the, like, can they represent everyone? Similarly, if people are drawn from a relatively narrow set of perspectives and values, are they actually going to be able to represent the nation in a non-patronising way? And, you know, everyone in this conversation can think of examples where well-meaning left liberals who want to make people's lives better end up delivering sort of ham-fisted patronizing content. And to be clear, um, the, the values that I'm describing about sort of like left liberal, like they're not very keen on the EU, but they're much less keen on not being in the EU. These are my values. These, this, I'm not setting up like something that I'm in opposition to as a problem. I'm saying that people who think like me is a problem if that's all we have in this mm. position. I mean, equally, I think it's worth sort of introducing a note of caution. There's the sort of famous Kurt description of the Vietnam War, where all of arts and culture was sort of laser focused on opposition, and it turned out to have the power of a custard pie dropped from the top of a ladder. Like, yeah, I think it's worth looking at the other side of this, though, as well, where there's a temptation to think of people working in culture as tremendously powerful and influential. And if they really were as powerful and influential as everybody makes out, then the tone of political discourse, the sort of attitudes that people hold, looking at things like electoral behaviour, you would expect to be quite different. You know, one way that you can understand it is if we look at how, like, if the claim is that the cultural sector is enormously out of touch, then it means that you end up with a consequence that I think you're seeing now in a lot of ways that they're just not really taken very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I yeah, I certainly feel that way about a lot of yeah political yeah, the power the, the power of that that custard pie drop from a drop from a ladder. Yeah. Um, but but to, to move on to the maybe we've talked about who works in culture a little bit, something about the benefits of culture. But who, uh, Alex, I think you had a question on consuming culture as a cultural uh, consumer yourself. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking of consumption. I, I'm uh, disappointed it wasn't a fruit pie of some sort dropped from a great height. But anyway, I thought you were going to say, we'll talking of consumption, that. you have. <laughs> yeah, <process>. I've got. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of uh, consumption of culture, I mean, it's obviously not a kind of one to one relationship between who produces and who consumes or anything like that. Uh, and I think we can obviously imagine who consumes culture if you think about who goes to the opera. Um, I don't, you know, I can imagine. Uh, what the answer to that would be, and I think most listeners could could imagine likewise. But of course, if you're if you want to surprise us uh, with with some actual facts, please please go ahead and do so, Mark. Um, but otherwise, I mean, how, what are the kind of are there any kind of relevant patterns that you dis that you discovered that you thought were particularly interesting in terms of the the cons consumption of culture, how it's done, where it's done, by whom? Yeah, so I think opera is an interesting example because, you know, I think like the previous Northern Powerhouse uh, Minister and the now president of the Northern Research Group is claiming that, you know, that while opera and ballet might be the standard form of participation and community engagement in London and the South, that football, in fact, holds the same role in the North of England, which is where I live. And... I think it's an illustrative example because for a lot of people, there's this idea of, you know, this elite 
that are attending all of these kind of activities. You know, it's really, really prominent in sort of middle class circles. And the important thing to say about opera is that hardly anyone goes. About 4% of people said that they went to the opera in the last 12 months. It is heavily stratified by social class. Um, if we think about the sort of formal definition of social class in a UK context, which I will not get into, you're looking at about 6% uh, of people who work in managerial or professional jobs or where the main income earner in the household is doing that went to the opera in the last 12 months. Whereas in working class households, you're looking at about 1%. And on the one hand, you know, that's a very clear demonstration of social inequality and cultural consumption. On the other hand, it flags how much a lot of the sort of high culture that we talk about and draw attention to, these are niche interests. You know, even classical music, which mm. is something that is held up as a real exemplar of middle-class culture as opposed to elite culture, is only 13% of middle-class people having gone in the previous 12 months. So a lot of this stuff is really, really niche. And one of the challenges with a lot of this kind of work is that you can only talk confidently about uh, who's going to things when they're the things that you're measuring. So I can tell you about opera and I can tell you about ballet and I can tell you about things like films, going to a film at cinema and I can talk to you about going to gigs and so on. But I can't talk very reliably about things like going to football. I can't talk very reliably about stand-up. I also can't talk very confidently about uh, a lot of more niche forms of activity. And because I think everybody's got a kind of instinct. And, you know, if you've gone to a bunch of post-rock shows, there's a sort of running joke about how limited the audience is. And, you know, you're seeing the same set of bald white guys every week. But, and that's probably true. Um, there are very clear patterns. You know, we would expect the dynamics that you see in terms of social class, gender and ethnicity to reproduce themselves uh, in a lot of the forms that we have good data on we can't be confident. Mm. Similarly, of some of the things that we have pretty good data, like not everything adheres to this pattern. You would assume from this description that, you know, every single event is full of middle-class white guys. And while that's true of a lot of things, it's not true of everything. Uh, something that's measured quite well, for example, is rates of attendance at stuff like uh, what's called culturally specific festivals, carnivals, uh, circus, and so on, which is much more of a mix. But yeah, broadly, you see quite striking patterns in so terms mm. of social class where middle class people are more likely to go, ethnic group where white people are much more likely to go, even net of class differences, and also age where a lot of this activity really skews heavily towards older people. Yeah. So I guess just to just to follow up on this quickly, I mean, putting to one side, perhaps some of the more <clears throat> theoretical questions about whether it's important to, to essentially embrace um, cultural products or reject them in terms of, you know, it's not about what people um, end up consuming. It's about what they think is is unacceptable to to consume. Um, but in, in terms of, I guess, kind of international comparison or putting some of the things that we've talked about, which I guess have been, you know, the research is based on the UK, and um, that's a starting point. I mean, are these sorts of things found all across across the world? It seems like a fairly kind of um, standard picture or one which which would probably 
kind of um, point to other contexts as well, because, you know, you have that that um, uh, association of, of certain cultural consumption behaviours with um, certain groups. Yeah, I mean, it's... I've read a lot of literature from different parts of the world. Obviously, you know, in different countries, things get measured slightly differently. There's different activities that you're looking at and so on. But the picture is pretty consistent, regardless of where you go. There's a lot of literature in the Anglosphere. Um, there's quite a lot of literature in the Nordic countries as well, where, you know, you might expect, given the ways that people talk about social democracy, that uh, things would be more even, they're not. Um, you know, there's other countries where we can't be as sure because the um, data isn't as uh, maybe up to the same, like not as much money has been spent on measuring this. But more or less, regardless of where you're looking, you see very similar kinds of patterns to what we describe. Uh, one of the big differences that we've been able to unpack is to look at the production end of things as well. Uh, because, but yeah, consumption is these inequalities are reproduced all over the world. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it sounds like, um, you know, a pattern that will be re repeated with national variations um, across the world. So I think Phil had a question, uh, maybe to kind of move on to some of the more synoptical concluding questions. Phil had something on COVID. Yeah, just basic. I mean, um, you mentioned you talk about COVID. Uh, so you, what do you see of the, you know, the short term and the long term effects of the pandemic on the culture and on the cultural industries? Uh, it will only get worse is the short answer. Um, in the last but couple of weeks... in what sense? Well, if you think that it's bad that people working in the cultural sector are disproportionately from sort of middle-class backgrounds, uh, you know, like disp disproportionately have independent sources of wealth, then, you know, wait two years where no cultural work is getting paid, the picture, uh, once it comes back, is going to be even more pronouncedly different. The... I mean, like, obviously every country is different, but when you look at a UK context, a huge number of cultural workers haven't been eligible for things like furlough or self-employment income support, all of these kinds of schemes. And so the numbers of people who are basically reporting that they're going to drop out of the workforce because they can't afford to have no work for the foreseeable future and indeed the unforeseeable future is enormous. Whereas, you know, other people, if you're independently wealthy, you can spend two years writing songs or you can put together your screenplay yeah. or whatever else it is. And so it's not looking good um, if those are your concerns. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose, like you say, it is as you'd expect. I guess the question is, though, just, just to kind of zoom out a little bit and um, <clears throat> I guess return back to one of the questions we started with about why the, the culture industry might or might not be bad i mean what's what's the aside from you know potentially some sympathy with with um some of our listeners who may well be in in cultural occupations or something adjacent and might well be going through not a not a particularly easy time like why why would this matter politically if if that um you know if we do see that that change Okay, I didn't foresee that. And so, like, I, I had assumed I would have an amazing answer. I will jump right in. But <laughs> if you're wondering why the pause was so long, that's why. That just means it was a good question. Yeah. Actually, actually, it was a, it was a question that I uh, extemporized. So the actual question bit ended up being very short and the introduction bit quite long. So... 
Part of it, I think, has to do with questions of social inequality more generally. In a lot of ways, and for a lot of uh, sort of theorists in the field, creative industries, cultural work, whatever you want to call it, exemplifies a lot of problems of work in general. You know, this is a group of people whose labour relations have changed, who are becoming sort of increasingly in something like a gig economy, their pay is getting worse, their conditions are getting worse. And these are jobs that, at least in the past, have had some sort of association with autonomy and dignity. And if the sorts of jobs that people want to do, that people find satisfying, are increasingly limited to people who come into them with independent wealth, then I think that's a clear problem. I don't, I'm not sure that that's the extent of the problem because, you know, if like that doesn't tell you anything about the uh, creative work specifically, it tells you a story about work. And, you know, one of the things that we really try to communicate in the book is that on the one hand, um, creative jobs really are distinctive, but on the other hand, they're jobs. And, you know, people shouldn't be willing to put up with bad treatment just because it's satisfying to be in a creative role. Um, you know, yeah. there is this idea, and you see this quite a lot, that, you know, creativity is the thing that will bring us together. That at the moment we're going through this sort mm. of global nightmare where, and you see, you have these mawkish adverts where there's a ballerina having to perform on her roof because she can't be, um, she can't be in, a theatre or an opera house doing the work properly and everyone cries because we love it so much. And, you know, this stuff gets effectively weaponized by Amazon who, or whoever else because people do buy yeah. into it. They do buy yeah. into the idea that this stuff is important and this is who we want to be. And if creativity who we want is, to... Yeah. yeah, creativity is, is, is always a good thing. Who's against creativity? Yeah. And, you know, like, it's it's easy to take the piss out of it. It's easy to say, you know, this is just something that Ian Amazon is using um, so that we buy, um, you know, we subscribe to Prime and we get a load of boxes or whatever. But it is capturing something that people genuinely believe. And so if the culture that gets represented on return is limited to the sort of Bendit Cumberbatches of the world, there is a concern about how inspirational that's going to be. And I can't believe I'm defending um, the, you know, the Amazon ads where it's we're happy because the opera's back and the opera is, you know, like it's this sort of misleading set of people who certainly wouldn't work there in the real world. But if it gets worse, then you just can't imagine um, a reconciliation, a sort of national reconciliation that's convincing. Mm. No, that's that's a kind of a, a fairly grim picture then. Um, and now I unfortunately just have a Benedict culture batch in my head. I don't know why that's just happened. Um, <laughs> so maybe we just if I brought nothing else to this podcast. <laughs> that's that's the big takeaway right there. I'm sorry, on you, Alex. Yeah, that that is on. that is on me. Um, okay, well that <laughs> we'll just conclude here. Um, thank you, Mark. That was actually really interesting. Cheers. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Increasingly, I find myself thinking that you can perform distinction about anything. There is not a single cultural form that you can't be a hipster about.
right you know like metal's a really easy example because you know there's like going to see metallica and like looking like you're in bill and ted or something but there's also going to see like the difficult thrash um or like the difficult sort of doom or whatever Hmm. um the like the highest cultural form is of course professional wrestling which is very much a form that is possible to be a hipster about because you know you're dismissing the cultural hegemony of the wwe the you know the big trump fundraiser and the mbs uh, sort of propaganda machine but instead you know you might be following new japan but then of course you dismiss new japan and you start discovering the um audience to 50, 50 people in a converted dentist office increasingly i think an amazing way of performing distinction is finding the lowest possible cultural form and finding a high cultural way of consuming it mm. Mm. that's a really good point yeah and it and it and it, and it works it works very well right because it allows you to say uh, this is the thing that that i don't like and if you like it then that's a problem but i like everything else yeah like all the other the other bits of it but just that one thing you know, it, it shows that you it shows that you don't really have the uh, the cultural capital necessary to to function. Yeah, that thing that you think is bad is actually good, but for incredibly niche reasons. Well, I mean, I guess that's like the the kind of breakdown of kind of mainstream uh, or the mainstream. I was going to say mainstream culture, but I mean the, the mainstream. Lamestream. Yeah, the lamestream. Yeah, well, because everybody now kind of hates lamestream. Everybody's kind of an outsider, um, and cultural elites. I mean, those with the high cultural capital, as you've just been saying, are are kind of consuming low culture things, albeit maybe ironically and whatever. So uh, everybody's an outsider, and therefore maybe there is no real kind of cultural outside in the more anymore in the way that you know maybe certain subcultures kind of did represent an outside. But maybe that's an opportunity to actually ask because I'm curious, Mark. Is there anything that you think? you know as an observer of culture that it that there is something really out there and that's really outside and that couldn't even particularly be appropriated by um you know well-to-do kind of well-connected people um because it's too weird or too out there so basically i want to get ahead of the game just to preempt the the, (laughs) i mean i i honestly can't think of anything but i think this is one of the consequences of being in my mid-30s that i'm now hilariously out of touch of anything actually cool yeah yeah yeah, that that does happen. Um, not to me, obviously. I listen to type oh, no. negative, which is very cool. <laughs> it's very contemporary. Yes. yes, there is a question about what what is going to be the 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 nineties or noughties band that's going to be uh, rediscovered or rehabilitated or uh, retromaniaed, um, and hopefully, hopefully, we can we can cash in on that because you 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 know we're getting to that that age now where we we're not falling between two stools anymore. We we were there when, you know, when McCluskey pay, played. The the weirdest experience gigs. that I've had of this, there's there's two good examples. The first one is last year, I went to see McCluskey at the Brudenell in Leeds. And the Brudenell has got two main gig rooms. They both hold roughly the same number of people. And McCluskey were in one and the Lighthouse family were in the other one. And so there was a real tension <laughs> in the bar. But... The, mo- the 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 thing that strikes me most is uh, we're, we're gonna uh, sorry Mark we're gonna have to cut right, this sir. because because like there will be three listeners who will know who McCluskey and Lighthouse family were but uh, James and I were at the um, London for, uh, leg of of that McCluskey reunion yeah. tour but sorry I interrupted your yeah yeah so story. the other example is maybe two or three years ago um, 
I was teaching, uh, some students were doing some group work and, you know, amongst other things, I think they were first years, they just arrived, they've been talking about what they'd done that summer. And they were talking about, a couple of them had been to the Leeds Festival. You know, remember that these are students who were, this maybe a couple of years ago now, so they were maybe born in sort of 99, 2000. And they were talking about how, you know, they'd been at this festival and it was really amazing and they'd been so thrilled because they had been able to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And my jaw was on the floor that like, I couldn't believe that like, you know, this isn't just me being a snob, that well, it's it, not like there's been like, a, they've well, it got totally into, is. It totally is. Yeah. I think people, it's not like they've got into radio consensus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so maybe it's that. Maybe the big next like cultural renaissance is going to be for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I take I, it back. I take it back about Family Guy. I the Red Hot Chili Peppers are are the best. In fact, that kind of that Californication um, album is pretty good. Pretty good shit. I like how all their songs are about like um, you know, like how drugs much and, to fuck. and heroin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like I like good. how they've how they've managed to bring together you know California and on the other hand fornication which which is what their album title is oh, and it's been welded that's um, true quite skillfully i think i mean yeah um but yeah no sorry uh that's yeah thanks thanks mark that was really uh, a lot of a lot of fun notwithstanding cool. your critique of um <clears throat> some berkshire based pod- i mean did you have somebody in mind because I, I i i was kind of thinking i would be i'd probably be good friends with this person that you're describing here they sound kind of cool they sound kind of kind of good yeah i mean the problem is i was trying to remember the name of uh, your dad's band joint joint venture <laughs> joint venture i was trying to so i remember i remember rumpy pumpy was the song <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was it was actually hanky panky that's just the oh. that's just the cherry on top oh. cherry on top but you, you know you, you your father your father, recording, is, right, Alex. your father is your the apple of your eye so you know um um they were called joint venture because they would they would smoke uh marijuana oh. like it was a cigarette oh, and there's a double meaning wow. their music. it's a drug reference that makes them cool <laughs> but also it's a collaboration between people yeah it's actually a good name I think this is probably a podcast called that. Let's wrap it up, guys. I think I think we're I think I think we're 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 done for this evening. That's when it all